Thank you, Dan. And just as Dan comes up to give our reading, just to give you a bit of a background, if you haven't been here the last uh, few weeks, uh, we've been looking at the, uh, in the, li- the life of the person of Samuel, a uh, character from the Old Testament. And we are now, this is week three of six, looking through the life of Samuel. Uh, so, Dan, over to you. Today's reading is taken from 1 Samuel, uh, chapter 8, and it's entitled, Israel Asked for a King. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Bathsheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not that you, that they have rejected you, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his right. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his right. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to his commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plough his ground and reap his harvests, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers, He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king. You have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we shall be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Great. Thank you so much, Dan. Oh, Oh, good morning. Um, It's such a pleasure to be with with you this morning. Uh, My name's Ed. Uh, I'm an intern at Christchurch for all of another hour. 
if it's your first time at Christchurch, we don't normally come. It's a real, it's a special pleasure to have you with us. Um, so I really hope you feel welcome. Um, as Graham's mentioned, we're currently looking at this series of Samuel. Samuel as being the last judge. <clears throat> and in the last couple of weeks, uh, we've seen Samuel uh, as a young boy being called in the temple. We've seen him in his, in his ministry, in his sort of prime almost, sort of leading the nation of Israel. And now we come to this week, and this week is a real turning point. This week is when it becomes evident that Samuel is going to be the last judge of Israel. Before we go any further, I'd just like to pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that it would speak to us this morning. And pray, Lord, that I would have nothing to say that you might have everything to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. As I was saying a second ago, in this chapter, the Israelites are going to make a decision that will end up being one of the most important decisions, one of the most important moments even in the entire history of the Israelite nation. It's a decision that actually is going to result in oppression, It's going to result in civil war. It's going to result in a fractured kingdom. And depending on how you read it, it could even be one of the reasons that actually they're conquered and almost destroyed and exiled 400 years later. This moment here, this chapter is a flashpoint. And so I think it's really important that we address this question of like, why did the Israelites want a king? Why was it that they wanted a king so badly? Then off the back of that, why was it such a bad idea? Why was it so terrible as to incur Samuel's displeasure? But first, why, why did the Israelites want a king so badly? We're told in verses 2 and 3 that it kind of sets the scene a little bit for us. We're told that after years of faithful service, Samuel was now an old man and new leadership was required. Samuel had, had asked his sons to help him. He pointed them as judges, but actually they weren't, they weren't faithful in their duties. They accepted bribes. They perverted the course of justice. And as a result, the leaders of the people of Israel gather together. They go to Samuel and say, look, we want a new leader. We want a king. That's a big request. If I'm making a big request, I, I tend to ask nicely. I tend to try and do some bartering, tend to sort of maybe sort of butter people up a little bit. We're told that the leaders of Israel say that you are old and your sons do not follow in your ways, Samuel. In other words, you're decrepit and your sons are terrible at their jobs. It's a pretty brutal blow. But they say... No, instead of another judge, we want a king. We want you to appoint for us a king. Now, at first reading, it doesn't sound like it's a terrible idea. Having, you know, one leader over the whole of Israel, appointed by God. Sure, that's like unified control. That's, that's not a bad thing. Could, you know, this could work. The problem is, none of this is really God's plan. It is entirely of their construction. And it's important to acknowledge as well what it means for them to get a king, what that really means. Because in appointing a king, they're getting more than a ruler. By choosing a king, they're asking for a monarchy. 
They're asking for a line of leaders who are established by birthright and family to lead the nation. It's important to note that up until this point in Israel, they'd been ruled and led by judges. So judges were people, men and women, who were raised up by God in a specific time for a specific purpose to lead the nation. And it's important that they were chosen by God. And yet here, Israel says, no, we want a king. They're essentially asking for God to be removed from their government. That's a huge deal. So why are they, why are they so desperate for a king? Why do they want this thing? Why do they want to replace God as their ruler? In verses 5 and 20, we're told a few things about why they want it. They want, they want a king to lead them. They want a king to go before them in battle. And they also want a king to be like the other nations. That's this phrase that comes up in both 5 and 20. They want a king to be like the other nations. And again, I think, or certainly I did, I read it and I was like, I don't see what the big deal is. Why is that so terrible? I think you've got to understand what they understood by the other nations. What were the nations that surrounded them? Well, two of the key ones that sort of come to mind. One is the Philistines. Philistines were this, were this group of people who repeatedly throughout the Old Testament seemed to invade and pillage and be a trouble for Israel. And the other one is, is, is the Assyrian kingdom, this rising power in the east, this growing nation. And it's important to note that really these might even be a little bit more than the nations. These were almost becoming something like empires. We see them throughout the Old Testament using their military power to, to, to bully the surrounding nations, to invade, to conquer, to pillage, to expand, and essentially to enjoy the spoils of war, the riches that it brings. And this model of an ever-expanding, aggressive, militaristic nation I don't think that's what God had in mind when he founds the nation of Israel. For me, when I was, I've been reading this, and I think, I think the reason that Israel wanted a king, when they say that they wanted to be like the other nations, they wanted to enjoy all the things they saw them doing, the conquesting, the enslaving, the, the just pillaging riches. The words in verse 20 about a warrior king, about one to lead them and go before them in battle, brings to mind for me like sort of the visible presence of an of impressive politician and, a, and a, you know, a, a warrior in one. Sort of people come to mind like you know, Winston Churchill and, and, and Queen Victoria. And you can argue the merits of them, but they were impressive statesmen and women nevertheless. Israel appears to have grown tired of being threatened, of having to trust and having to wait on God in their time of peril. They want to take matters into their own hands. They want to forge themselves a new government and to try something that is not God's way. I think this goes some way to beginning to explain why the nation of Israel wanted a king and why it was a bad idea. But Having said that, this isn't the first time the Israelites have, have turned against God. 
In fact, you know, the, the, the Old Testament, you know, and Judges and everything, it's full of examples of when Israel have turned away from God. Indeed, that's kind of the point of the Judges. They're kind of designed to bring Israel back to true worship. And so why is this time different? Why is it that Samuel was so displeased? Why was it so terrible that they wanted a king? In the NIV translation, uh, it says that Samuel was displeased by what they said. Um, I don't think that really conveys the, uh, the, the strength of, of how he felt about it. Um, the, the, the Hebrew translates something more literally like to um, what he saw was evil in his eyes. Samuel, this faithful servant of God, is appalled by their request. They've called out his sons for being unfaithful servants. They've asked for leadership that is contrary to God's will. They've even brought his age into it. But he doesn't react unduly. Despite his despair, he doesn't even answer them from the looks of the passage. Actually, immediately, he takes this difficult situation, he lifts it up, and he prays. And in turn, God is quick to point out that it's not Samuel that they've rejected. Actually, that it is God. As we've talked about a little bit, you know, them rejecting God as their king, wanting to, wanting to change that dynamic. They're also rejecting something about themselves as well and who they were made to be. In Israel, sorry, in the Old Testament, Israel are constantly referred to as this separated people, these people chosen by God, for God. They're designed to be different. God consistently uses this idea that they are blessed to be a blessing to the nations. They are the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. By their very design, by their very nature, by their very founding, they were meant to be different, not like the other nations and yet here, Israel is saying they don't want it. And they don't want to be different. With that in mind, when we, when we read this text again, when they say that, they're not just re- rejecting God as their omnipotent leader. Actually, they're rejecting their own place as God's chosen people. That their leaders would no longer be people chosen by God for the purposes of his kingdom, but rather that their leaders would be chosen purely by birthright and who their family was. Samuel is, as we've mentioned, outraged by their request. And although God says to listen to the people, Samuel goes to great lengths to explain how having a king is going to be a terrible burden on the people. He talks about how they will, they will lose the best of their harvest. They'll lose their sons to join his military. They'll lose their daughters essentially to slavery. And worst of all, when this burden becomes too great, Samuel says, you will cry out and the Lord will not answer you. Samuel essentially is describing slavery. He's describing the kind of slavery that Israel's not experienced for, for 20 generations since they, were, since they were slaved in Egypt. This new state of affairs under a king is the complete antithesis 
of what they currently have. It's the complete opposite of what God has done for them by making them the free people of Israel. And yet, despite these warnings, no one listens. The the leaders say, no, give us a king. And we're told that God goes, okay. Okay, listen to them, Samuel, and I will give them a king. In short, to, to summarize a little bit of this story, the Israelites seems to have grown dependent, sorry, grown tired of depending on God. They looked at the other nations around them. They saw that, that they were stronger, they had better military, they had better economies, they were more wealthy. And they didn't know God. They didn't worship God. They just attacked other nations and pillaged and, and annexed. And, and so they were just like, well, what are we doing then? Why aren't we like them? And so in their pursuit, in Israel's pursuit of that earthly wealth, of that earthly power, they rejected everything that they had. They rejected God's current appointed leader, Samuel. They rejected their place as God's chosen people, and they rejected God's role in their government. All that they, too, could be like other nations. This is, um, this is now normally the part of the sermon where I take all we've talked about and I try and make it relevant today. Um, and some sermons are kind of like neatly like that. It's like, it's like, like a sit-down meal. You sort of like, you, know, you sit down, you get a little introduction, and you get sat with the meal. This, this sermon's a bit more like a buffet in the sense that you're probably going to have to come up and sort of pick for yourself what you want. There's a lot that we could say about this idea of God's chosen people rejecting him and choosing to do things their own way. I'm sure we all have examples of that in our own lives. Maybe the danger of sacrificing our earthly principles for, uh, sorry, sacrificing our, our principles for earthly gain, whether it be in our jobs or, or in other things that we're involved with. Whether it be placing our, our hopes and our dreams and our aspirations for our life in, in the highest place, actually that they become the most important thing and they replace the place of God as king. Or it might be actually we're in a situation a bit like Israel and we're looking at what other people are doing. Well, actually, I'm just dissatisfied. Why can't I be doing what they're doing? And we don't pause for a second to be thinking about, well, what, what might God be trying to do here? Why might God have brought us to this situation at this time? That image of Israel calling out for a change in leadership, an opportunity to grow and conquer in the world, but at the cost of losing everything, I hope that, that image sits with us this week. For me... This image, actually, of, of God putting, somewhat, putting a people in a particular place, it kind of, kind of speaks to me a little bit, actually, about my experience as an intern. As has uh, been mentioned, today is my last day, so, you know, you get to the end of something, and you're always going to start getting reflective. <clears throat> oh, I'm so sorry. Give me a sec. And um, so about two and a half years ago, I had to, uh, I started, well, started thinking about being an intern. I got to the end of my third year and um, it wasn't plan A. 
to do the internship. It wasn't plan A. Plan A was to apply for a load of public sector grad, grad, grad jobs, you know, your NHS, your, your civil service, all of that. Hop down to London and let the next few years just take care of themselves. That was, that was plan A. Um, that didn't happen, it didn't work out, I didn't get any jobs, sadly, no one, no one wanted me. Um, and so what ended up happening was I was like, well, I've kind of got to move back home, I'll, I'll give this internship a go. I have to explain, like, it wasn't that I wasn't excited about it. I was really excited about the idea of working with students, there was lots of things I was looking forward to. But there was also lots that were going to be more difficult. I had to move back in with my, my parents after moving back home. I was going to have to be in a church that, that I knew and I loved, but actually I hadn't been a big part of for like three years. I didn't know many people. I was in a city as well that, that I loved. I loved Chester, but I didn't know many people. None of my friends were still here. And it was just a situation where I was just like, well, I've just kind of got to trust God that this all kind of will work itself out. As an aside, that's kind of what the internship is. It's an opportunity to trust God with an entire year. To trust him with, in everything. Your finances, your, your job, your home, where you're living. The entire year itself. And whatever's going to come afterwards. It requires a lot of trust. But it also reaps the riches of rewards. <coughs> and yet I'd be lying... If in amongst this great process that the internship has been, and it really has been, I haven't at times looked at what my mates are doing and thought, I wish I was doing that though. I had friends who, uh, who left university at the same time as me and went on to do amazing grad schemes like Teach First to Make a Difference in Young People's Lives. I had friends who, who joined the civil service and started managing these incredible projects. I had friends who, who became software developers and started making real dollar and, and developing some really interesting ideas. I had friends who just, who just went traveling. I finished university and just, and just saw more of the world. And there was a real sense of not, not wanting to, to leave the internship. Not at all. It was good, but just like, oh, wouldn't it be great to be doing something else? When I was thinking on this and reflecting on it, it specifically reminded me of a story. Um, I, I got married less than a year ago. Uh, and, <clears throat> sorry, about this time last year, it was my stag do. Uh, it was my stag do, went away for a weekend in Wales. And on the second night, we got some, we got some uh, fire going on the beach, we had some beers, people were in good spirits. Um, and somebody said, oh, what advice can we give for Ed? as he's starting married life. This is a year ago, bearing in mind. So I'd done a year of the internship. I knew I was doing a year again. People started shouting out some, some rather silly things, which I won't repeat here. Um, but one of the things that somebody said, um, and I won't say who it was, um, but their names rhymes with a pop Rito. Um, they said, get a real job. <laughs> that was their advice for, for married life. And it sounds stupid, at the time everyone laughed and it was very funny and everything else, but there was a sense in which it hit home. But I was like, yeah, I should be getting a real job. My, my, my wife's going into further education again. Like, is this a good idea? Why aren't I doing what I've seen my mates do? That looks so much better. 
And I have to reiterate again that the internship has been an amazing thing. In fact, you get to the end and you're able to look back on it. And actually, it's been, it's been the richest two years. It has been the most generous blessing. I've learned a lot about, about myself, some of the things that I, I hope I'm, I'm good at, and, and a lot about the things I'm not so good at and the flaws that I know I have. Well, I was very blessed with, with new friends, and as I say, getting to know Christchurch again. The last two years have been a richer and more wonderful blessing than I could have done anywhere else. And so again, as we sort of come towards the end, I, I apologize that I've done the laziest thing um, a preacher can do and sort of set up an idea, this idea of, of Israel turning their back on God and, and left it to, to you to figure out where that image might hit home in your own lives. But I do hope that that image of Israel turning their back rejecting God, not only as their king, but rejecting who they are as well. I hope that that image would serve us both as a warning, yes, but I pray that it would also serve us as a real encouragement and a reminder to the wonderful, faithful, glorious, and worthy true king that we have in God. As I say, I'm, I'm, I'm coming to the end now, um, but there's just one last, last point that I think bears touching on. Um, because you see, if it was going to be so terrible, it's going to be so terrible getting a king, if it's not in God's plan, if it's such an awful idea, then why did God still give them a king? All that was promised regarding this terrible king came to pass. As we read on in the book of Samuel, the, their first king, Saul, he's pretty terrible. He's not great, he goes out badly. Their second king, David, he comes along. He, he's actually seen as the, you know, the true king of Israel, the, the, the greatest king of Israel. And yet, he's an adulterer and a murderer. So what is this king doing? Why is there this king? And there's a lot of proposed reasons about why it might be. Lots to do with the relationship between God and his people and all sorts. But I wonder if there was something else as well. I wonder if... I wonder if it was because God knew that there was already a king. There was a king who was faithful. A king who served his people and who would go on to serve them even to the point of death. A king who even now goes before his people in every trial and tribulation and battle. Even if the Jews hadn't met him yet, I wonder if God gave him a king because he knew that one day they'd meet the true king in Jesus. Because it turned out not everything about having a king was, was terrible for the Jews. There were, there were times when there were wise kings, wise kings who made good judgments, righteous judgments. There were kings who led their people in worship and kings who led them in repentance when they had sinned. There were times when kings would justly defend and protect their subjects. I wonder if these good moments, I wonder if they were to be a foretaste of the king who would come. These glimpses of the, of the good king, of the true king, of the righteous king, they'd be glimpses of Jesus. 
the King who dwells in us and still protects us to this day. I'm just going to say a prayer for us to finish. Heavenly Father, again, we, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would dwell richly in our hearts. Father, I pray you would be showing us the places where we need to make sure that you are king, that you are dwelling richly and at the front of everything that we do. I pray that we would be reminded of your constant faithfulness as king. In Jesus' name, amen.